Today's episode is sponsored by Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER, spelled out, when you visit store.dscvrd.co. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Balm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. And uh, I am currently coming to you from a uh, from inside my uh, my band's tour van. We are playing in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. We actually already played tonight and there is just nowhere in this venue that is quiet. So I am uh, hiding in the van. We are parked between two dumpsters. So uh, I'm just trying to set the set the set the mood for for uh, the the life I'm living right now. Um, but yeah, I'm, it's uh, everything's good. I'm having fun on the road. Uh, it's been a little bit of a challenge trying to juggle the podcast as well as be on the road. But hey, this is what I signed up for. It's all good. I am excited to tell you about my guest today. My guest is Steve Hernandez. He is a comedian. And a, uh, I'm going to call him a professional podcaster. He has several podcasts. He's been doing it for over 10 years. Uh, I, I felt, in, I felt the, uh, the urge to get Steve on the show in particular because he has a brand new podcast that I love a lot. It's really fun. It's really enjoyable. Um, it's called Read the Bible with Me with Steve Hernandez. Uh, you, you'll hear all about Steve's um, background with uh, with religion he was a uh, he was a part of a, a mega church and he left the church and um so this is uh the podcast is coming from the point of view of someone who's a non-believer um but has a lot of love and respect for the actual bible it's it's a very fascinating uh podcast and he's a comedian so you can imagine it's very funny uh he also does a show called views from the vista uh which is a movie podcast which i've been a guest on twice it's a it's wonderful uh also has a show called the male gaze as well as who's your god with amy miller which he's the co-host of um i had been a guest on the podcast uh on that podcast as well that was actually the first time i met steve and for any touche amore fans out there uh steve played the bartender in the limelight video and uh his co-host on views from the uh views from the vista as well as the male gaze uh a gentleman named zed cutsinger uh he played the taxi driver so there's a little uh, inside baseball for you. Um, but I think Steve is hilarious. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed his company ever since I, uh, I met him a couple years ago. So I was really honored to, to sit down and talk with him. He's also the show's first comedian. So there you go. I'm just trying to, trying to knock off as many professions and art forms as I can and not just, uh, you know, interview musicians, which, I, uh, which is easy to fall down the hole of. Um, so, but before we get there, I want to talk about my friends over at Rootless Coffee. Rootless Coffee Company is a small batch roaster out of Flint, Michigan, making high-end coffee with bags designed by some of the comic industry's rising stars. 
collaborating with artists, bands, brands, nonprofits, wrestlers, comedians, and more. Rootless is the punk rock gateway to craft coffee. Easy to understand and delicious roast options. Listeners get 20% off their order using the code HARDTIMES at checkout when they visit rootlesscoffee.com. Any size, any grind, any time. Break free from boring. All right. Uh, I always try to remind everybody I have a Patreon. Hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Lots of cool bonus content. We're doing a lot of fun things over there. And uh, I'm currently doing a uh, Touche Amore tour journal, which I'm updating uh, every week. So, yeah, head on over there. And also, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I would really appreciate it. If you're listening on uh, iTunes or Spotify or whatever, throw me, a, throw me a little follow if you haven't done that yet. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with the wonderful Steve Hernandez. Steve it's nice to see you. How are you? Uh, I'm great. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I look to you as the the king of podcasts. Uh, you've you've been doing them for a long time. I remember that was uh, your podcast, the one you did uh, you do with Amy Miller, the Who's Your God podcast, was uh, I think one of the first ones that I ever actually did. Um, so this was this is a pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to have you on. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be on the other side finally, so I can talk a lot on the other ones. I don't really talk that much. I try to uh, be guest focused. They call, uh, they call me a board man. So I'm kind of, I try to move the show along and point to all the things. So, but these ones, I'm the guest. I'm going to fucking let it rip, bro. Please. Yes. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I'm excited about. Um, so you're, you're a comedian turned podcast host. Um, if you were to fill out a resume, um, and someone said what your job title was. Would you say comedian or would you say podcaster? You know, I actually started podcasting first. Before really? stand-up. Yeah, I, uh, I got into stand-up about a year after I started podcasting. And I've been doing stand-up for 11 years. So 12 years ago, I started doing it. Uh, I was very late to computers, Jeremy. So I don't want you to think that at any point. What's, what's 12 years ago? Uh, was that two <laughs> Dude, fucking math. Yeah, two thousand nine, two thousand eight, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, when I got go. my first computer. Okay. I like barely was like not into it at all. But uh, I started podcasting because of Adam Carolla. Um, you you remember uh, he he used to do like love that talk and radio. Yeah, I remember the talk radio station that had um, Tom Likas. It had Adam Carolla. It had all these like in L.A. Here we had the thing, and that shut down. And I remember he was always in the morning. But I, I worked at, like, uh, bars and restaurants and stuff, so I never heard his thing. But that next Monday, whoever was working with him, like his producer, whoever taught him, showed him how to do podcasts. And that was 12 years ago, and I started listening to him. And he was just like, yeah, you know, if you want to do this, you should just buy a computer and, you know, start interviewing your friends. And, and that's exactly what I did. So 12 years ago, I started interviewing my family and friends a podcast called Respect the Danger of Knives that became a comedy podcast a year later along with my co-host Scott Lurs. Uh, and um, we did two, I did 280 episodes of that. Wow. Uh, I, th- I think we're up to over 200 episodes on Who's Your God. We're almost at 300 on Views from the Vista, my movie podcast. Uh, and then uh, I just launched, uh, and then uh, I just launched this new one called Read the Bible with Me with Steve Hernandez. That's basically a Bible study, 
Uh, and I, I don't know if it's going to work, but I've been called to do it. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I always look for a motivation or like, like, a, like pretty much like, I'm sure you do this with your guests too, where there's a million people you want to talk to, you'd love to have on the show, but you kind of look for like the right time to have that person on. So you just announced this podcast and, uh, I've loved it. I, I didn't get, I haven't heard the third episode yet, but the first two I plowed just one after another while walking my dog. And I was like, I need to have Steve on. I want to talk about this show. Well, thank you so much. Now you're someone who has had virtually no interest in God or Christianity. And I, just because we've had so many conversations about this stuff, organized religion, you've never been that interested in it, correct? Well, um, I don't expect you to ha- to have like remembered our episode like too much, but I was raised Christian. I went yes. to a private school uh, private like Christian elementary school. And then I started to lose my faith. I would probably say late junior high, high school-ish. But I put on the show for my mom that I was still a Christian just to avoid fights. And I would go to church with her and all that sort of stuff. But like, yeah, as I got older, I, my, my interest in it started to wane and eventually disappear. But, uh, but yeah, so like I'm familiar with it. So it's funny, even just like right out the gate when you were in one of the episodes, you're talking about the book of James and I was like, and you're talking to certain, certain parts of it. I was like, oh, this is all coming back to me already. <laughs> it's crazy for me. Uh, on the third episode, I talk about this. Uh, the second episode is actually the first one where we actually get into the Bible. The first one I talk about mo- mostly why I'm doing it. But when I started to read James, which is probably my favorite book in the Bible, if people aren't familiar with it, it's uh, in the New Testament. James is Jesus's literal brother. And uh, it's kind of like the book of Proverbs where, where he's just given a lot of advice. Um, and I, I've, I've always liked it. I memorized it at, at a point in my, my life. I had I memorized all five chapters and I was able to do it all at once at one point. Um, but it is so crazy to go back. I stopped being a minister 20 years ago. Uh, but I grew up in the church. I studied the Bible. I love the Bible. So it's so crazy to go back and start reading the stuff again that's ingrained in my heart and then being like, oh, my God, this is I at, at, at the, after, after the second episode, I was like, I'm going to have to start writing sermons again. I mean, because I, I, I because I, I just the second one, uh, even though I, uh, it's good, I'm getting great feedback on it and everything. I just knew, oh, I'm going to have to just straight up start preaching again. Of course. Not the same way because I don't believe in most of the bullshit that comes along with it. But um, I am very interested in in the idea of God and what God can be, what it is, and um, even talking about it in such a way that we don't allow people. Uh, mostly, my enemy is the American evangelical ch- Christian Church. Uh, we don't allow these people to, and we have kind of given up. Like, oh, that what when they say God, that's what they're talking about, but. I, I feel God moving in my life. I don't believe God is a being, but uh, I do believe it might be my conscience. It might be my brain. I don't really think it might, is, a, is a being, but I, I do think, uh, like Carl Jung talks about, that we are connected in ways. Have you done psychedelics before, Jeremy? Straight edge. Straight edge guy my whole life. Okay. Um, the first time I did mushrooms, and I'm not like, I've done mushrooms maybe four times, uh, maybe, maybe seven times, I'll say. Um, but the first time I did mushrooms, I, I right away understood that uh, there was a God and that we are connected. So 
I, I don't know what the fuck that means, but I'm at a place in my life where I'm really open to exploring what that could mean again. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by just the concept of having so many books memorized. Like, you, wa- you know, we're all used to, to watching movies and TV shows and stuff where often there's characters that will just quick, pull, you know, like uh, my girl and I just recently watched The West Wing. We've never seen it before. So we watched all The West Wing. And there's, you know, plenty of scenes where Martin Sheen's having some sort of, you know, long uh, debate with somebody. And then he'll be like, well, you know, Proverbs, blah, 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 says. And you don't think about how, oh, that must mean that he has the entire book memorized. But. I mean, you people exist. It's it's crazy. It's like it's how long did it take you to get like that far along to where you felt so quick to like pull it like that? Well, it wasn't. It was. Uh, I have. Um, I had a mentor named Dan Brooks. He was a. He he is a. He's a retired police officer now, but he was a detective. A great man. He. I, I mean, I really loved him. He treated me like a son. Um, but there was a, a time when he was kind of mentoring a group of us. We must have been like 18 or 19 years old, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe still in high school, but there's four or five of us and we would just, it was his idea to just memorize. So we'd get and talk together like as a men's discipleship group. And then we would memorize maybe like four verses at a time, five verses at a time. And every week we would come back to do that. I haven't done that. I mean, there was a time I'm sure I had different parts of the Bible memorized, but I've never done anything like that before where I was like, Oh, I'm going to memorize that. Proverbs especially is one of those books where Martin Sheen does not have the whole fucking thing memorized. Okay, Jeremy? <laughs> but there are like some famous Proverbs stuff. There's okay, some famous lines that, that Jesus has said. Uh, it's funny because in the podcast, my producer, uh, Gerardo, isn't familiar with the Bible at all, too. So he'll just ask me these kind of basic questions. And I'll, I just remember... Um, Growing up in the church that I did, we were so obsessed with the Bible. Um, my pastor, uh, Pastor Jim Reeve, uh, had a master a doctorate from uh, Fuller Seminary, which a lot of people call the the Harvard of the West Coast in terms of theology schools. So I loved reading the Bible, figuring out what everything meant, and uh, trying to come up with answers. We would do these Bible drill things. I don't know if you ever did these when you were little, but our pastor would quiz us and say like. Oh, uh, I want to have like uh, I want to have premarital sex right now. I think it's a great idea. And then, with our knowledge of the Bible, we would like race to find the verse and stand up and be like, "Oh, but you know, Song of Songs three nineteen says not to do it for this reason or right. that reason, like that." So we would like battle each other like that. They made it a real game. Um, you know, it's it's kind of dumb now. Well, one thing that I really love doing uh, this podcast now is that there are verses. When people talk about the Bible, they um, Christians talk about the Bible. They think it's most of them believe that it's the inerrant word of God. They think it's perfect and that everything is there for a reason and it's, it's without blemish. And so there's some really stupid verses in the Bible that when I was a Christian, I had to try to like I had to try to explain why this was there. Like I tried to be like, oh, this is kind of probably what they were saying. But now when I'm going back through it, I'm like. Oh, this verse fucking sucks. <laughs> I'm like, because, you know, a lot of the New Testament, like James and the Apostle, or Paul especially, Paul wrote 80% of what we know of as Christian theology. Okay. And so, um, but a lot of the New Testament is Paul writing to different new churches in different cities. So Corinth, the First Corinthians 1 and 2. He's just writing letters. They're trying to figure out the rules for a church. So a lot of times... 
there'll be some weird verses, and it's just because there was some weird guy at that church, and Paul had to like come up with some. He had he was just talking to the guy. They didn't plan on this thing being the holy word of God. He's just writing a fucking letter. So they'll be like, "Hey, you you can't sleep with your stepmom or anything like that, stuff like that." And it's like that was obviously going on in Ephesus. It doesn't apply to us now. I mean, you know, maybe you shouldn't sleep with your stepmom, but I don't think it's a sin. Oh my god. That's so good. That's so good. Um so you know, you're you're from you're I mean I I know this you're from LA originally born and raised yes. yeah yeah Lincoln Heights uh, Highland Park till I was four or five uh, and then when we moved to West Covina and so I spent most of my adult life in Covina West Covina the church that I used to work at is called Faith Church in West Covina uh, and yeah I spent most of my life I moved out here to LA proper. You know, probably 10, 12 years ago. But, yeah, I'm from this area, L.A. County, yeah. You actually blew my mind. I remember we talked about this because um, when I went on the Who's Your God podcast, you mentioned, like, oh, yeah, I was a, you know, a youth pastor at this mega church, And I, I foolishly was like, I didn't know we had those in Southern California. Because when you think of mega church, like, I know I do at least, like, I think of the South. I think of, you know... Uh, the, the, the Joel, Aust, uh, was it Austin or Austin? Austin. Yeah. Like you think of that as, as, as a, a mega church. I had no idea those existed here in, in Southern California. And, uh, so how long were you a, a youth pastor there? Probably three or four years, but I grew, I grew up there. Okay. So it would be, um, it, it is, if I was only there, you know, I stopped when I was 22, 23. Um, and it would be like. I grew up there and kind of helped put the thing together. Um, the the one of the biggest churches uh, in the country, and the guy who came up with kind of um, the the way mega churches are ran is a guy named Rick Warren. Uh, he had a huge book called The Purpose Driven Life, but he wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. Um, you know, I think in the late early '90s or something like that. And all and so many mega churches are built around that. Have you heard of Saddleback Church? Is that – no, maybe I have – I was going to say, is that like Orange County or something? It is Orange County. Oh, it is Orange County. Yes, I yeah, have yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That's, yeah, that's Rick Warren. He came up with a lot of this shit, and uh, I, think they, I think they're at like 30,000. If you were to go to – it's a college campus, basically. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, so, so, so the biggest, if not like the most influential mega ch- church of all time happened right in, in Orange County. I know people don't think of Los Angeles or Southern California – having that kind of thing but it is a, a just a different flavor of christianity in the 70s um the the whole kind of the vi- it was called the vineyard movement took off so the idea of like holy hippies and all this kind of stuff everything was founded really here in southern california la and and orange county so as much as these like big churches exist in the south and there are far more many of them a lot of what we know as evangelical Christianity Christianity started right here in Los Angeles and Orange County. Wow, I think maybe in my my reasoning also has to deal with space. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't seem like we could have that large of a venue for something like that. Um, I think that's what built it in my head. You know, because everything here is so congested. Yeah, and I think there's uh I think churches have 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 changed like that. I think the idea of the mega church is going out. What you'll find now more is um are are a bunch of satellite churches. 
Um, have you have you heard of Chad Veach? I talk about him a lot on my podcast. He's I don't this, think so. He's a he's a real he's like a Justin Bieber kind of preacher. He's not that guy. That guy, yeah. uh, guy that guy had a fall from grace recently. But he's here in L.A. They have a church at El Rey. It's called Zoe Church. And what they tend to do now, the new setup for a lot of these kind of hip churches is they'll have one. They'll have multiple locations and they'll satellite in the teaching. But they'll have different worship groups at each of the locations. And they'll have Got different it. people that come greet. And then they'll be like, all right, Pastor, Pastor Chad's going to preach now. And then the satellite image of the teacher pops up. Because that is an astute observation about space uh, currently. But in the 70s and 80s, space wasn't a, a big, as a big of a deal. The church that I ministered at when I was 15, 16 years old, we bought an old uh, Hughes aircraft uh, factory um, for about Three million dollars, I believe it was. I don't know. I forget. I forget. I want to say ten acres, 15, twelve acres, for three million dollars. They are currently selling. If not, they've sold that to Amazon for thirty million this year. And I would love to know what's going to happen with that money. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, you t- I, yeah, I heard you talk about that. The 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 person you were also just talking about preaching was that uh, one of the persons who's like clips you played. Maybe in the second. Yes, episode. I play. I play <laughs> clips from. I'm gonna have to start watching more. And by the way, I love watching sermons. I don't believe this shit anymore. I especially have problems with. Uh, I mean, basic tenets of Christianity. The, the the fact, the idea that Jesus or God had to pay a price for our sins, a blood sacrifice. This is also fucking stupid and ludicrous, and obviously derived from ancient religions at the time that did things like that. You know. Uh, And for us to try to act like it's a a true modern thing now is bullshit. Um, But I do love preaching and I do love sermons and I know good preachers and I know bad preachers. And so, you know, I feel so bad for my wife, uh, Julia, who sometimes I'll just like go on YouTube, like in between a show or something. I'll be like, (laughs) let me just watch 10 minutes. Let me just watch 10 (laughs) minutes of this guy. And the worst the preaching is. Uh, I you, I know you're a musician, but this is how it is with stand up for me. I love I love comedy and I love open mic comedy and bad comedy too, um, for for good reasons because it's great to watch people grow. It's great to watch a new comedian who doesn't know how to do things, but you see inside them a, a, an originality that you you haven't seen for a while. That's so cool. But I also love seeing people that are so terrible and that will never get bad, and they just fuck with the rules of the... They don't understand the rules, so they're breaking them to their detriment, and I love seeing that, because that, in its own way, is it's like, oh, it's like oh, so original in its own way, too, that, like, when I watched Dan Reeve, the guy who took over Faith Community Church, who's a year older than me, that I knew grew, growing up, his sister was my first love, I know this guy, he's a, he's a moron, and he's one of the worst preachers that have ever existed. And I can't believe they're handing this church over to the guy. It's the, it shows the hubris and the pride that this, this fucking family has. But I watch that guy all the time. He is the worst preacher I've ever seen. And I'm telling you, Jeremy, if you came over, I could show you two hours of clips. It's just me and you watching this fucking preaching because it's so great. It's so bad. Yeah, I, I was really that's I think what has uh, really drawn me into your show is that um, it's fun to hear someone who is very um, well versed in what good preaching is play a clip and be like, let me tell you why this sucks. Like uh, you point out at one point how he's putting the emphasis on the wrong word 
um, of of a certain pass of, of a certain part of scripture, something like that, and you're just laying into it. It's really, really entertaining, and um, yeah, I, I can't recommend uh, people uh, enough to go check out the show. It's it's awesome. You know, it's the the funny thing to me is I could not have done this show ten years ago. This all was twenty years ago, but I have zero animosity in my heart now towards religion. Um, or, or towards, I've never was mad at God, uh, but I, I did have, I did struggle like getting out of the idea of religion, and I'm definitely, and, and I am now straight up just mad at the evangelical Christian church, the church I came from in particular too, because they're not playing by the rules of the Bible, they're not playing by the rules of Christ. So to me, this whole show is almost like an inside football thing where. We filmed episode five yesterday, and I ended up going on some crazy theological rant. I mean, I, I hope I don't, I don't know how the show's going to go, Jeremy, because it, <laughs> it really is for like ex-Christians or, I, you know, if you're into maybe if you've always wanted to know the, the Bible, it's that kind of thing. But those are two particular groups of people. Most people don't rightfully don't care about this shit. But um, uh, to me, this is like inside football. That and, and I don't have to play by their rules because I don't buy it. And I'm not there's no anger. I'm not mad at them for any I have no animosity in my heart, but I'm just pissed that they're not playing by the rules of Christ. Something that they say somebody they say they love and worship and they're like throwing the Bible uh down down the fucking gutter. And so to me I, I think it's just the idea of calling that out and then hopefully opening the eyes to people that are still stuck in these situations to understand that, that these people are dragging the name of Christ and dragging God through the mud. It's why so many people, you know, turn away from the idea of God. God, The idea of God is really just a feeling. We just put that word on it. You know, ancient caveman times, they had these crazy feelings of mystery about the universe and about love and forgiveness. They put this word on it uh, to describe this thing that's undescribable, and now these people have fucking packaged it, and they sell it wholesale goods. They have no problem making a ton of money and taking money from working class people. And so for that, I'm riled up. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if if you know the rules of this stuff, I think you'll love it because it is. Uh, I do love tearing them apart. So <laughs> well, yeah, I think I. I mean, I certainly know a lot of people that were raised in it that eventually fell out of it, but would get such enjoyment out of, of, of what you're doing because they are well-versed. They, these things do come back. You're like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. But the other thing is that when you talk about it, it's very clear that you have a, that there's still love in your heart for like what it, what it is. And there's a respect aspect attached to that. Um, example, I have a friend um, who, for lack of a better term, was raised around Scientology, right? Yeah. And is not a Scientologist. But when, say, the South Park episode aired, <laughs> he was like, that was incorrect. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, like, sure. I, could t- I, could tell, I could tell he was, like, bothered by it, you know? But he's also, like, he's not a Scientologist. It's just one of those things where it's, like, when you know something, you kind of have this inherent gut reaction to almost defend it, even though you're not connected to it anymore. Well, because it's just you, you want – I think generally you want – the truth to be out there 
And, uh, you know, I'm probably that way. That person is that way with Scientology. I'm that way with the Bible and Christianity and also with the Joe Rogan podcast, I think, too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've, li- I've listened to Joe Rogan. So I used to listen to him all the time. I was never a bro or anything, and I'm smart enough to know. He's gotten so off the deep end in a lot of things. But I, I was listening to the episode today uh, after he got COVID when he was talking to Tom Segura. And I'm so I'm just listening to the things. I just know it well enough to know that the when you see like the media say certain things, they're just getting things wrong. And these things that are, are wrong about it um, to people who love Joe Rogan or to people who love Christianity, they're kind of a big deal. So like what? So so there's just little particulars that you have to get right. And it's it's uh, it's so to me as someone who loves. I, I guess I would have to say I, I love listening to the Joe Rogan. I don't love Joe Rogan. There's so many things he does wrong. But I do understand the kind of person he is. I yeah. mean, I'm a bartender. I, I work at the Chatterbox in Covina. And I, we have a lot of conservative people in there, too. Uh, and they're great people and everything. Uh, not people necessarily that voted for Trump. I'm not saying that. I don't know what to say to that kind of a person. Um, but I do know conservative people. And, um, you know, you if you want to if you want to write off swaths of people, which is what you do when you talk shit about Christianity or Joe Rogan fans who gets, you know, he has 100 million listens a month. So if we're writing off these people, we are missing we are missing out key insights to like a whole to a a big, big portion of our country. And so if you want to say they're just this way, you can. It's fine. It probably won't affect your life in any in any way, but if you're someone who loves the human experience or like for me as a comedian, when I say my jokes, they need to be funny and they need to be true. So I think it's more interesting if you understand truly where people are coming from and what they're truly afraid of. A lot of times it is just hate, you know, Joe Rogan or, or a lot of times those guys just, you know, they, they don't understand that they're misogynists um, and they don't understand that misogyny is subtle a lot of times and, it's stuff like that, you you know. Yeah. So all of it, it's like something where it's like, "Hey, man, you're right. A lot of what you're saying is right, but you're you're missing the point." Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm, most of my comedy, just like I think when I was a pastor, is I want to connect people. I do believe that God uh, made people some people conservative and some people liberal. Both of those are obviously such broad terms. I don't like that, um, but I think we need each other. I'm not. A, I'm a. I'm a progressive, crazy, liberal, sex freak. If anybody met me, you know, I, I would say I'm socialist, but I don't know enough about socialism to fully say that. I don't feel like I could speak on that too much. But I do believe we need each other. If we were a tribe of a hundred, we need crazy ass fucking artists, warriors like myself that would push us as a tribe to move forward. And then we need conservative people that that are like. No, we should wait back right now. If we go out that way, we might get caught in a storm and the whole tribe's going to die. I believe that as a country, that's all of us together. And that by, uh, you know, I'm not a both sidesism too. Like I said, if you voted for Trump, I think you're a fucking moron. But there's things going on there that we, we need to understand if w- there's any way forward. There may not be a way forward. I'm not dumb. We, there may not be a way forward, but I'm not ready, quite ready to throw in the towel yet. Well, if that was just your uh, your speech to start running for uh, for office, uh, <laughs> you, you've got my vote. Um, 
So, Steve, I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know how much I, we talked about it, but the show is a lot about first experiences. And I'm so glad that we talked about the show and hyped it all up because because uh, I really do think people need to check it out. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, you being a comedian. I was curious um, when you were young, what the first what like comedy were you draw were you uh, were you drawn to? Like, do you remember the first thing that you connected with, uh, like comedy wise? Uh, yes, but I mean, you know, I, I did not want to be a stand up growing up. But I will tell you the first thing I connected comedy wise, which is probably a lot of people. Did you listen to Eddie Murphy's Delirious when you were little? Yeah. <laughs> How old were you? Uh, definitely not old enough to get it. You know, like yes. you, you, you laugh as a kid. You laugh at the obvious dirty jokes that you know you feel like you're going to get in trouble if your parents know you're listening to it. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine's dad had it, and we would we'd go to his place after school and <laughs> listen to it when his dad wasn't home from work yet. And we definitely did not understand a lot of it. But yeah, I remembered as a kid, and uh, yeah, I, it has to be a lot of people around our age. I remember um, I had a cousin. We have all girl cousins, but there, we had one guy cousin and my older brother who they would, like, go in the room. And they would let me and my brother sometimes go in there, and we'd have to sit on the bed. But I remember being in his bedroom and him playing that tape and just, like, dying laughing. You know, you know that it's so – obviously, it's so homophobic and all this and hateful now. But at the time, uh, Eddie Murphy doing an impression of uh, Mr. T getting fucked in the ass, I mean, as a seven- or eight-year-old – is I, I didn't even understand probably what getting fucked in the ass meant. But as a seven or eight year old, him going like, mm, like, Ugh. I remember like we, we would like say all the lines. Hey, boy, you look mighty fine in those tight jeans, like that kind of stuff. We would just say all that being seven or eight years old and just dying laughing to that. So to me, that is like the like, you know, the, my earliest memory of what stand up or comedy was. And then, of course. Fell in love with Wayne's World in eighth grade, all that kind of stuff. But I had no uh, – I always made funny videos. I grew up in the church, um, and when I became a pastor, I was a funny pastor. I, so I would tell funny stories, and then fucking once, like, I got their, everyone's defenses down, I'd hit them with some fucking Holy Spirit shit, like, you guys ever feel, you guys ever feel lonely? Like that kind of thing, you know? And then, and then, you know, all these kids are raising their hands, praising God, weeping, you know? Uh, so that's the kind of pastor I was. I was a funny pastor. Yeah. So, okay. I got two things. One, um, real quick, were your, were your parents pretty strict about stuff considering the, the, the religious background? No, because I just came from a pretty chaotic background. Like my dad had a drinking problem and was abusive, but like, you know, he, he was like Mexican abusive. If you're Mexican out there too, you know, your dad just hit you too hard and shit for sometimes for no reason. He didn't, he never punched us, but he used these wood paddles that he would make, which it was like, that's terror. Like the fact, looking back on it now, especially when I see pictures of myself at seven or eight or something, I'm like, I can't believe you were beating the shit out of us for that. But I, for most of the, most Mexicans, it's funny because Mexicans all, they're like, yeah, we got beat too. But you don't realize you get beat till you talk to white people and you watch like the blood drain out of your faces when you're telling them the story. And they're like, oh, fuck. And then I'm like, oh, shit, I guess I was abused. But, yeah. uh, but, yeah. but, but, but they didn't like, they, they had no control over really kind of what we were putting in, in us. But like I said, I was a good kid. I, I really loved Christ and I was tr- trying to do the right thing most of the time. So, you know, that tape when I was little at my cousin's house, something that was burned into my my thing, but they they didn't have a 
My dad would like they didn't want us to see rated R movies. I saw I saw I snuck in. I went to see Scent of a Woman. Have you seen Scent of a Woman? Not in probably 15 20 years. I saw it in the theater. And you know, yeah. it's about a blind man and this guy helping the blind man and learning about but my dad uh is so my dad's so fucked up. I got in so much trouble. He found out I saw that and he saw it was rated R and I remember him saying, "Scent of a Woman." He's like do you think I'm stupid? <laughs> He's like, do you think I don't know what that is? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> My dad's obviously thinking it's about pussy, and I'm just yeah. like trying to watch this El pa- touching El Pacino film. Uh, they, yeah, so they weren't they they weren't good at like monitoring that, but like I said, I was generally a pretty good kid anyway. Did uh. Did you cuss in front of your parents? Did that? Did uh, I, didn't, came to- I didn't cuss. I didn't cuss till yeah. I was twenty-two years old. When, yeah, once I left the church, I, I just I was not someone who cussed at all. I remember my friend Joe Stevens, who was in my Christian rap group, uh, Get Down Voltron. I got to give you a CD, <laughs> Jeremy. You'd love it. Uh, but I remember, you know, there was a year when I was leaving the church, and I was starting to drink a lot and stuff. But Joe would come out. I'll never forget one time Joe said, "Steve, you know when you curse." You sound like a real amateur cursor. And uh, it's so funny because, hey, Joe, if you could see me now, I'm a fucking pro, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, it's funny when you start something like that late. Like, you do probably feel a little, a little like, am I using the, am I doing it right? Does, yeah, are people going to look at me if I start? Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, I don't remember that, but I must have been something. I probably was doing it a lot, too. So to hear your friend go from zero to 60 like that, <laughs> right. I, I'm sure I, I was, you know, I think cursing you should use like salt and pepper. Uh, and I was probably just pouring it on all the food at the time. Yeah, you're the you're, it's it's like the straight edge kid who breaks edge at like 27 <laughs> or, or like 32. And oh you're my like, God. oh, God, he's blacking out at like 33. Like that must happen right? all the time, all the time. There's no every edge person that breaks immediately tries to play catch up in like two weeks. It's so embarrassing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, too, is you, that's why you're supposed to drunk drink early. You get all that bullshit out of the way or like yeah. you. Not drink at all. Always yeah, the best yo, call. Yeah, I'm. Th- I mean, I'm. I'm 38. If I. If I. Uh, if. If I started now, I'm going to keep it to myself. <laughs> would, would, would you be open to a psychedelic drug? Um. Yes, I think, but I do feel like I'm such an anxious person, and I know that your mental state, uh, from what I've been told, your mental state plays a very big role in how it can go for you. And if I think I don't know that I would ever be comfortable taking something, no, and not being like, take it. Oh, this is going to go bad. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. That's uh, everything you said is true and fair. So, yeah, it might not be up your alley. Yeah, like I'm not even a big roller coaster guy. So like <laughs> well, they're, they're nothing they're nothing the same, but I do like that about you, you know. Yeah, yeah no just, drugs just, for me. I don't even like roller coasters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like the Disney roller coasters are about as strong as I get. So so just the idea of like, oh, this is not going I'm going to die on this thing. Um but uh yeah, so when when was the first time that you uh did stand up? Like what what was your first stand up experience? Was Dude, it an open I mic? I started speaking of, I started so old. Um I left the church when I was twenty two, twenty three, 
And, uh, you know, I was just a loser. Uh, I worked at um, TGI Fridays in West Covina for like six years. Partied hard. Uh, And then I worked at the Chatterbox for a few years. I got married when I was 30. And I went back to school. I wanted to be an English professor. Um, I was doing great, getting straight A's. I was about to transfer to UCLA. I needed this one class in the summer. I was number one on the waiting list. They changed the way they did their thing, and they sent me a school email that said, like, do you remember, uh, did, you want, did you ever take any college classes? I didn't, no. Okay, good. Yeah. Usually, if you're first on the waiting list, the first few people they let in, right, no matter what. So I was like, yes, if I get this class, I could transfer to UCLA next semester. I was stoked. That was supposed to be my life. They changed the way they did things. They, they sent me to my school email, and they said, you got to pay for this in the next 24 hours, or we're going to let you out of the class. And that meant I would have to go to community college for another year. Uh, that happened. I fucking, uh, you know, I, I didn't get the class. I, st- I literally cried because I was so excited to get out of that fucking school. Um, because I was doing that podcast, I had interviewed my roommate's friend, or a guy I worked at TGI Friday's uh, roommate from college, guy named Scott Lors, one of my best friends now, uh, who's still a comic. I had interviewed him for my podcast just as a guy, and he said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing stand-up comedy. He's the guy like, who loves stand-up. He's from the East Coast, uh, loved all this like, stuff that I don't know. Gone to, Brian Regan, gone to so many shows, loves stand-up, and he, he, he's like, I'm going to start doing stand-up. And I remember he went, did a bringer show at this uh, place called El Cid off of Sunset, and uh, me and my ex at the time went to see him. And he was really funny. It was a bringer show, and there was all his friends were there, and he was really great. I was like, wow, man, that's great. That's so cool he was doing that. And you remember, I, 10 years before, I was preaching every week, sometimes multiple times a week, our sermons, writing the sermons, doing all that stuff. I felt like that was a calling at the time. And so when I left the church, I didn't think I'd ever have a calling like that again. So I saw Scott do that, and I was like, man, that's so cool. It wasn't something I really wanted to do myself, but I was like, that's really cool. And then when I didn't get that class, uh, I, Scott hit me up or something, and he just said, hey, I, I'm going to start going to open mics. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, well, I used to write funny sermons. I mean, I used to tell funny stories and then make it a sermon. I could just do it without the sermon. And so the first open mic I went to is a place called uh, Casey's Irish Pub. It's still there downtown, but they used to have a great open mic there. And uh, I went up there, and that summer I caught the bug, and I told my wife, "Hey, listen, um, we're gonna—I'm gonna finish this semester, so you don't think I'm like being a loser and quitting or anything, and I'll get straight A's, but I'm gonna to do stand up yeah. after that." And she was—she didn't want me to. My ex was very comes from a very conservative household, where college is like the most important thing, and um, she she said, "Hey, I don't care if you do it." If you want to get your college degree and the day after that start doing stand-up again, uh, that's fine by me, but uh, you have to get a college degree. And uh, I just told her, that, that college degree is not going to do me any good. I'm already 32 fucking years old. Uh, there's, I already, at that point, you know, a lot of people start when they're 22, 23. I was like, I'm already behind. And I was like, I'm going to get straight A's this semester, and then I'm going to quit school. And that's what happened. And, you know, I told her at the end of that semester – Hey, if you don't, if you can't be with me or anything, I completely understand. But I have to do this, and she's like, "Fine, I'll stay with you." And then we got we got divorced three years later. 
Do you remember much of what you did on stage for that first one? Oh, yeah, it was bad. It was bad, Jeremy. I was a bad comic for the first couple of years. Um, the first year or two of being a stand-up, you really just want to, like, kill the, the, that thing in that thing of you that's not letting you be yourself. So, um, you know, the more if you're a funny person and the more yourself on your stage, then you're an original and you're funny. But that first year or something, you, you like you got to get that out of your blood to like try to make people laugh because you don't make people laugh by trying to make people laugh. You make people laugh by like saying the crazy shit that's really going on inside of you. And then hopefully that connects with people. But that takes uh, a year or two. I mean, I, I forgot. I, I mean, I forgot some of my jokes. I, I know at some point I had a joke about like on the Ghostbuster th- theme song, movie theme song, when he said Bustin' makes me feel good. I forgot what the premise was, but I know that was the punchline. It was bad. And I do feel bad that I was married to uh, my ex at the time because she would go to my shows and she would watch me eat shit. I'm a queer, like, even then I was open polyamorous. So I would try to do stuff that I, I didn't understand you needed a lot of skill to do back then or else you just freak everyone out. And uh, so I freaked a lot of people out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think it was I think it was on um, one of the episodes where you're talking about um, the need to eat shit, right? Yes. Like y- you you like ha- you like have to do that because it's going to make you grow. It's going to make you be a better comic. Um, all of those sorts of things. And and I was thinking about that in relation to even like being in bands, you know, like, uh, the same way I think for comedians, for someone to just like instantly think they're good and start getting on bigger shows, maybe they're popular, they're a popular person and people just throw them on shows without them really doing the work is similar to where, you know, if, uh, if a band starts and they don't do the, the sleeping on hardwood floors, sleeping in the Walmart parking lot in their van, it's like, it's quick to be like, yeah, I don't know if that person earned their stripes uh, on this. Well, the, we're um, not talking about earning stripes, though. Aren't there bands that are like come out of the gate and they're just that good? I mean, it's 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 tough to say. I mean, even if they're just that good, you know, it's I think it's it's probably a bit of. Um, What's the word I'm even thinking of? Um, it's probably some sort of emotional baggage on every band member's part to where, like, when you've struggled and you've done all the the shitty stuff, you know, like all those hard things, and then you just see a band go immediately onto a bus and like tour in a bus, you're like, come the fuck on, come yeah, on. Yeah, but but I mean, there are ones. I, I know those kind of things are often too prepackaged and shit too. Right. Where it's like, oh, the reason why they're successful are the shitty reasons and it's because you know um the record companies can sell them in a certain way to a certain audience right off the bat i i get that artistic thing yeah uh, but with stand-up i do think like you know and and granted that that's the same way i could think of comics now who got got tv shows pretty quick and stuff and they are they they go and play in front of like pretty protected audiences so audiences that like love let's say someone was on a famous television show that show that got big and they start doing um 
Stay, okay, let me just say names. You know, it's a podcast. We'll make it. We'll make it fun. But uh, for for you know, for whoever's listening, yeah. Uh, uh, Ileana Glazer is one of the um, women from what's it called, Broad City. Yeah, and um, wildly successful show. She never did stand up, but there was a demand for her to go do live stuff, and um, but she never like. Did mics? She never did regular shows or anything like that. She did sketch stuff, but um, she put out a special that I encourage everybody to look at on Amazon Prime, Ileana Glazer special. And then just let me know what you think, <laughs> uh, because uh, it, you know, in my opinion, it's it, I I I I think it's pretty bad. It might be the worst stand-up special I've ever seen, but all her audience that is there that came to see her are having a great time. It's a yeah. blast. So there are people like that, which is exactly what you're talking about, where, yeah. where it's like, oh, she's wildly successful. She sold out that theater. She's doing all that stuff. That audience is eating it up. They don't necessarily care about music, but they do love whatever this thing is. And so I totally. think that's probably what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can see that for sure with, with, uh, with people that – you know like um michael ian black has been pretty open about like yeah he did they were a sketch group and then he's been on tv a bunch and then he was like i guess i'm gonna go do stand-up and uh i know like mark maron for a while gave him a bunch of shit for for that because he was like oh so now you're just you're slumming it you're you decided now you're gonna come do stand-up yeah for for those of us who like love the art of it yeah uh, uh but also like famous people typically you know the audiences they they give it a pass so it, 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 you know but i do know you know when i talk about failing and stuff all those open mics and everything you know telling a joke uh that you know works and then having it not work uh if you're not used to that feeling that's why you go to open mics that's why you do really bad shows and stuff if you're not used to that feeling of essentially getting punched um because it feels like you're getting punched when you say a joke that usually kicks ass and you get nothing from it. it. It's a visceral feeling where it feels like someone punched you in the stomach. If you're not used to that feeling, uh, then you're not going to do well in that kind of an atmosphere. So, when you know, I can go. I couldn't always do it, but I can go to a room of conservative people in Orange County and I can go kick their ass now. Uh, I can do a Mexican room now. I can do a half an hour Mexican room now. And I couldn't do that at the beginning because um, they always sense, like, this fool's gay. Uh, <laughs> now I know I could do my same gay jokes, but do it in, in a, with a little bit of a wink so they'll be like, this fool's crazy, like that kind of a thing. <laughs> Where before I couldn't do that. that but I, I have developed the styles and ways to switch it in such a way. Where, but that took a long time. It took a lot of reps and open mics and bad shows to become a better stand-up artistically. Do you, and I think you've you've said it before, but do you do you really attribute your um, ability to get up there and hold the mic from your years of doing the the, the preaching on your own? Like it, it developed like a swagger and like how you approach things. I think how I do comedy is very much like a preacher. So I don't think that's true for everybody. It probably helped me um, be more comfortable in front of people. But I think if you saw my style, there's a lot of people who, when they find out I'm a, I was a minister, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, the, the same place that I would go to um, to write my sermons, uh, I w you know, when I would say the Holy Spirit is telling me to do this stuff, that is the same place um, 
that I go to write jokes. So I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call that thing the Holy Spirit anymore, but it's the exact same creative place uh, where I get both of the things now. Even if that, even if one of those is about, uh, you know, the gospel of Matthew and one of those is about getting fucked in the ass. So it's still same place, same thing. Um, just because I'm curious, did do you, when you, so when you're writing for, for your comedy, are you actually genuinely like handwriting are you typing are you just making notes to yourself in your phone like oh this i want to talk about this i do all that stuff i write all the notes uh i write it out on a yellow legal pad um i'll go to an open mic and i'll uh i'll say it and then a lot of times i'll think all right i'm gonna connect that to that to that this is a new part i better buffer it with an old thing that works for sure When you go up at an open mic, I like to come out with something that works to gain a little credibility with the crowd. And then you try the new thing and you see how you feel about it. I tape all of my sets on my phone. I did an open mic on Tuesday. Um, I did one and then I did one yesterday. And then I changed the direction based on how that one went on Tuesday. Sometimes you could write the thing and you think that's how you feel. But as you start to say it, you're like, well, that's stupid. As it's starting to come out of your mouth in front of people yeah. and like, I don't really feel that way or that's just very dumb. Uh, but it takes going to do that to fix it. To me, for me, doing stand-up, and I think for a lot of comics, I'm like building, I'm writing an essay. I'm building, a, we call them chunks a lot of it. You know, some people call them bits, but we're doing like chunks. I have a Dodger chunk right now where I have like five or five or six jokes and premises in those. So I'm always looking to add to that Dodger chunk so I could do 10 minutes on being a Dodger fan or all that kind of stuff. I'm always writing an essay and looking for the three points to back that essay and then hopefully using those different things to pile together to make a whole you know, half-hour set. A three-minute set, a five-minute set, 10-minute set, 15, 20, half-hour, hour. That's fascinating. I, I have to ask if you... So you just mentioned you did two open mics and you're working on you're working on a chunk. Yeah. So is it the audience that's telling you whether you need to move things around or is it a feeling the audience is just is secondary? It, yep. it's, 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 is it more in like how you're delivering it in the moment? For me, the it's funny because uh, people have said in the past for comedy that individually people are dumb, but the audience is always the smartest person in the world. So even whatever you think about them, and, and I'm playing the, the rules of stand-up comedy. So I'm an alternative comedy here in uh, comic. That, that definition doesn't mean that much anymore. Here in Los Angeles, people would call me an East Side comic or an independent comic who doesn't really care that much about the clubs. I throw a lot of my own shows. Our stuff tends to be a little more progressive, a little more that, you know, that kind of shit. Um, I don't care about the audience, but because I'm doing stand-up comedy... The rules are I have to make them laugh. So I don't care if these people find me funny as a as a person or whatever. But because the game is that they have to laugh at it, then I have to figure out I have to make them laugh. So I'm not like when I hear their laughter, you'll hear some comics. I'm just not that kind of a guy. I'm not like a clown. Oh, anything for the laughs. Like, I don't give a fuck. But as I'm saying this stuff. They have to laugh. And also, I do have to believe they sense something. I have this old bit that I'm trying to work in about these type, the type of white women I like. Um, and something I've figured out over the years, and it's gotten more and more so, 
is that you can't really, especially to the kind of audiences that I talk to generally, and also because I think it's hack if you do, you can't really talk too much about women's looks anymore. Um, you just can't mention it. It causes women to just kind of like freeze up. And I understand why. It's because women oftentimes are judged primarily by their looks. Uh, they hate themselves and their bodies all this time. So if me as a comic mention like, oh, I like, you know, I like this kind of thing or I like that kind of thing. Now this specific chunk that I do doesn't say anything bad about their bodies and the stuff I say is supposed all of them are kind of weird and funny like so if you heard it you couldn't be like you wouldn't be like oh I can't believe he said that trait about me good or bad they're funny things so because I I know but also I noticed when I said it on Tuesday I felt the audience clench up for the first time I've in in, you know (laughs) I, they haven't really clenched up before, but we might be that way in culture as a society. Things, you know, you'll hear people talk about cancel culture. There's things you can't say anymore. Oh, I used to be able to do all that. That, you know, you, you take that with forever you will. I don't believe any of that shit. I think I can say whatever I want. The Apostle Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And that's how I live my life. That's how I try to do my comedy. So I could try to make this stuff work, or I could figure out, Maybe it's not advantageous for me to do this bit anymore. Right, right. Yeah, then you, you just play the game of, is it is the bit worth it? Yes, and now what I did, there, I had two parts to that. What I did on Wednesday was I said some gay stuff up front so they knew that I was queer, uh, and then I then that gave me a little more leeway with the first part of the woman's looks, and I cut the second part. I cut the second part that's very funny that I'm just going to move away from a while. But I was just talking about women's looks for three minutes. Now I do it for a minute and a half. I put some queer stuff up front, buys me a little time and a little credibility with them. And so they know I don't hate women off the bat. <laughs> and so, I mean, you're really deal moving those pieces around because um, you're trying to like, you know, it's like going on a date. I, I don't want to say you're trying to seduce the audience, but you are trying to make them really like you yeah. so that they like the stuff that comes out of your mouth. So even though I've got some, you know, if I'm going to do some dark shit, I have some very, some very like graphic queer thing stuff that I've got to do 10 or 15 minutes up front before I do this or else I'm shooting myself in the foot. And I've learned that over the years that these people have to believe that I'm this kind of a person before, before I say that joke. And they need 10 or 15 minutes of jokes for them to trust me to go to this place. Yeah, it's a, it's a disarming mechanism. I understand. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, man, I I give you I give you and all comics honestly so much uh, so much praise because um, I did it one time. I forget if we talked about this. No, ever. we did it. What happened? Yeah. When was this? So we talked moments mo- uh, a little while ago about you know the the ability to feel insulated with the, with a crowd that knows you, right? So like I don't think I deserve any sort of credibility really because it was a hard time show. So basically uh hard times. That's how I met John Michael. Cause yeah. he, he was helping put that on. Um, so he, he invited me. He's like, Hey, we do these things at the meltdown. Um, would you want to come be like a guest on this thing? We could work you into a bit or a skit or what do you think? And I was like, a dream of mine has always been to try stand up. <laughs> it's always been in the back of my mind. It's something I want to try. 
this feels like the perfect opportunity. So I get there um, and uh, I bring my now fiance with me. And uh, I'm thankful that there's only, you know, there's like less than 30 people there. I'm like, okay, this is, you know, probably even less. It's probably like 20 people if I'm being generous, you know. Um, (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm stressed. And of course, there's like six comics on the show. And then um, I think it was Bill, potentially, uh, one of the co-owners of Hard Times, approaches me and says, hey, we're going to have you close. (laughs) I was just like, what (laughs) the fuck? Like, that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life, but okay. And he's like, yeah, I think everyone, I think most people in this room probably know who you are. So it sounds like it'd probably be the best thing to do. And I was like, all right. Um, but I'll never forget. I mean, honestly, walking on that stage, that was the scariest thing I have ever done ever. Like it brought me back to giving book reports in front of your class when you're at the most awkward age of your life, you know? Um, all of these things, like all my, my, my self-consciousness, my anxieties, all of them were just like right to the top. And I'll never forget, like I, I had planned, you know, like, and also I did 10 minutes. So I was like, okay. So I had kind of planned what I, what in, in which order I wanted to do this thing. But I don't know if you've ever been, did you ever do any shows at Meltdown? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. So, you know, how it's in that back room there. And yes. then it, the, there's a door that connects to the alley. There's like an alley back there. Yeah. So the door is the door is ajar a little bit. And it's dead silent in the room as I get up there. And it's a season where crickets outside are <laughs> so fucking loud. No, that room is very has a famously had a lot of crickets in it. That's so okay. funny. Yeah. I walked up there and I was, and I'm about to start and I just go can everyone just take a second and listen to that sound? Because that is exactly what everyone's worst nightmare sound <laughs> is like the, you know, whatever. And, uh, and once, because I started on something that wasn't planned, it then took me like, I, if there was a video of it, I'm thankful there's not. It took me like probably six seconds to remember how to start. Yeah. Like I was just like, So, and it, like, that was the scariest six yeah. seconds where I was like, fuck, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then I, I kind of stumbled through it. I think it, I think it went okay. But I remember walking off feeling, getting that, that feeling of like, I, I feel like I want to do this, but then I never pursued it again. Cause I was like, it was, ter- it terrified me. So Good, I give it's you for losers. Cr- it's for losers. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does feel pretty crazy. It feels, it felt, how different did it feel from? performing in the band in, in in a good way how different did it feel uh well the thing the best part about doing the band thing is that you're all in this thing together you know what i'm saying i can hide behind my other guys there's a wall of sound that my voice is you know on top of if we're in the you know it's like if we're all we're all gonna go down together if this thing sucks being up there by yourself everyone's staring at you not n- never doing it before all of those sorts of things, you know, and again, the audience, at least half the people in my room were aware of who I was chuckled along and whatever. But like, if that, I don't think I could ever have walked into an open mic um, and just to a room full of strangers, try to do that. I would be annihilated, you know, but, but I mean, the thing is, you said it too, is like you do that set and imagine you taped it on your phone or whatever. Yeah. And you, you were like, Okay, well, I want to do this different next time. This mm-hmm. is what I would do different, or I should have moved that to there. So to me, I don't think people understand how like intellectually satisfying it is, how, how much it really is puzzle-solving in a lot of ways. 
And I think there is a certain kind of brain like that I have and that a lot of stand-ups have where it's just the most fulfilling thing I could ever do. So even though I, you know, I don't think, I, I think there's a chance that I can make a living from this. Uh, but to, to make it in this is, it's almost, it's like making it in uh, music. You know, it's like you've got to, if, if you're lucky, you can maybe do it. And even then, you know, you, as you know, we've got to come up with all these different ways to scrape by and actually make a living too. But th- it is just so intellectually satisfying in a way that you just keep doing that. So you do that first one and then you, you keep going back and you then imagine once you start getting laughs and imagine then once you start killing, then it's like, okay, I guess I'm just going to do this for the rest of my fucking life. Here's the thing I've always been curious of. You have comedian friends, right? Probably people you do shows with all the time. A lot of the same kind of faces are familiar. A lot of people on the same shows. Do you feel, does anyone feel awkward with your peers when you're going up and doing a set that you've, that they've all seen you do before? Absolutely not. No. No, absolutely not. We, we just understand. We're like coworkers. It's like this is the job. And, you know, a lot of times the, the, I know, I've known guys now for 10 or 11 years, and I know their bits inside out and stuff, and you're, you're just pulling for them. You want them to do well. You want them to do the job. And so, but, yeah, everybody, yeah, we all know, like, this is the, that's what stand-up is, is you, yeah. you build your toolbox. So before the pandemic, at one point, I could probably do an hour and 15 minutes I can now probably do 45 minutes, maybe 40 minutes comfortably. Um, but you're just building that toolbox. There's bits that I say, oh, I never want to do that. But if I'm down in San Diego and, <laughs> and these fucking motherfuckers aren't biting for my shit, I've got, I've got my Little Mermaid joke where I do a big <laughs> act out where I know that it'll make these dumb Marines laugh. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm not. I will, I will grab that tool if I need that fucking tool. <laughs> Oh, that's lovely. I love that. I love that. Uh, Steve, I feel like I could talk to you all goddamn day. Um, let me, I, I, I wrap up every show with, uh, with asking, um, when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? Um, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of silly. Uh, it's not silly, but this is when I first felt like accepted in to the LA comedy community. Um, but there used to be this open mic called the Bruco over in Westwood. Um, it ran for, I think, 25 years. It ran by a guy named Robert Yesamore and Vance Sanders, uh, where you would go every Tuesday. This was like one of the best mics in Los Angeles 10 or 11 years ago. And um, Robert and Vance sit right up front like a judge desk, like, uh, like American Idol. And I remember um, after maybe a year and a half, I would go and I would get drunk and I would be there and they just would not laugh at my jokes. They just, I was bad, but you start to piece it together. And then I remember there came a time where I would go to Bruco and then I would make them laugh and you would make the room laugh. And you feel at that point, I remember the first time I made Vance Sanders and Robert Yasamora laugh at Bruco where I was like, okay, like I'm a part of this now. I'm, I'm a real comedian because I've been accepted into this community. I, and that that uh, that mic was like so big and influential when they had the last one, like Zach Galifianakis, when all these like famous comedians who st- have been doing stand up that long, 
that's where they started too. So uh, that mic doesn't exist anymore, but I remember that is when I felt like, okay, I'm a real comedian now. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I love that. I love that. Do you, do you, I know you do, uh, you do a lot of open mics. You go to, uh, you do sets at the bar you work at Chatterbox. Um, do you, do do you ever go or, or do like places like comedy store or anything like that ever? Uh, yeah, sometimes the, the comedy store, I'm not passed at the comedy store. They have a new manager over there that I think I can get passed at mm-hmm. over there, but, uh, they have an open mic called potluck on Mondays. They put up like 15 condomics randomly picked like 200 people sign up yeah. and, uh, randomly picked with quotations because I know a lot of the door guys, they respect me as a comic. Before the pandemic, I would go there and I would get up once a month later on in the thing. And the, the, the hope is that the manager sees you and passes you and they start giving you little spots there. But they haven't started the open mic up yet. Like I said, I'm not really a club comic. That's not like. Yeah. And that's not like to shut down any of my options. It's just about where you spend your time. And I don't spend my time in the Hollywood area, the Los Angeles comedy scene, there's like four different scenes going on there. And it's just not where I spend my time. You got to hang out there a lot. You got to do that. And to me, I'd rather just be going up and producing my own shows. Is it going to pay off? I don't know. It might've been a bad move for me, Jeremy. We'll see. Well, I I guess the reason I asked was was mostly because you mentioned there's like four different scenes and things like that. Like I'm wondering if randomly doing a, uh, an open mic at, at the comedy store will maybe teach you something to then you can apply when you come back to your scene or, or something not, like that. Like if, not that, at, if those things not help. At the, yeah, not at the comedy store because the comedy store, you have to do your best there at all the time. So you can't really, it's just you're performing stuff that works. Yeah. Um, but it is a good idea. The, le- the scene's kind of leveled right now because of COVID still. And because sure. with the variant, no one really feels like we can just open the door up again. But, yeah, definitely there are open mics that I go to that I definitely work on things. And you get them to a place where, okay, this is very close. Then I take that stuff and I would go to a mic on the west side. Or I'd go to the mics on the valley because they haven't seen those bits. A lot of stand-up is the surprise of the joke. And so you can only try out a joke for me, twice in front of a, an audience that has kind of seen it before you just you're not going to get any kind of reaction because they know what's coming. So, it. Y- yeah, it does pay to go to other mics and other different scenes to help hammer out the joke. Totally. Totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I enjoyed this a lot. Thanks for having me on, Jer. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Steve Hernandez and thank you for listening. Once again, if you enjoyed this and you haven't subscribed to the show, please do so. Maybe leave a uh, little rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Helps a whole lot. And uh, yeah, I'll see you on uh, Monday with a brand new Radio Hour episode. Take care of yourself. Be good. Bye-bye.